Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 17th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So I have my partner in crime back with me on the desk this morning. Great Matt. to be back, so, Mark. Good morning. Great to be back. <laughs> good to have you back. It was lonely last week. I bet. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed doing the podcast with you, man. So I know. I'm glad to be here, man. Good, good. Um, so as always, uh, before we get started, I'll take just a couple minutes to review the um, performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And the numbers are as of um, the close on October 16th, and the data is from stockcharts.com. So the S&P 500 index is up 0.44% for the month and up 19.26% for the year. The Dow Jones is up 0.38% for the month and up 17.95% for the year. The NASDAQ composite is up 1.56 for the month and up two or excuse me, 22.44% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 is up 0.14% for the month and up 14.28% for the year. The International X United States Index is up. 0.92% for the year and up, excuse me, 0.92% for the month and up 11.7% for the year. The three-month treasury yield still um, around 1.67%. The two-year treasury sits at 1.61% and the 10-year treasury yield at 1.77%. So um, those are the numbers as we stand this morning. All right. So uh, we kicked off earnings season this week with the banks reporting mostly positive news coming out of those reports so far this year, Matt, or this quarter. Yeah, I think for the most part, I would say they're actually surprising. So, um, you know, for listeners, publicly traded companies have to report their earnings um, every quarter. And these earnings announcements are from um, the beginning of July through the end of September. And as these numbers are coming in, um, I think people are surprised at how profitable some of these bigger banks have been during the third quarter. And that has helped, say, stocks in general over the last couple of trading days. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then Netflix reported last night and they reported better than expected results. But I did see that their um, guidance possibly wasn't in line. I didn't read the report totally, but um, they didn't hit their subscriber growth numbers. So. That's going to be an interesting one to see how they play out and how they evolve because of all of the competition they're facing from everyone else with all these streaming services coming out that, um, you know, may be eventually more popular than something like Netflix. And, you know, they're not going to be the kingpin anymore for streaming services. I mean, they could they could evolve and do that, but there's a lot more competition. Sure. I mean. What you're kind of communicating is they've always been the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, you got Disney launching. You got Apple launching. And the problem is, is that these companies launching have drastically deeper, deeper pockets. pockets. 
And less debt. <laughs> and a lot less debt. So um, it was funny. The headline I saw last night is the CEO, Mark, was spinning it that, well, more people launching just validates our business model. That's true, but you're still not identifying the fact that you have competition coming in the right, door. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be interesting yeah. from afar to kind of watch that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Netflix was up pretty big. It was up eight or nine percent, I think, on the move. Um, I think the I implied val morning, um, uh, for listeners, what I mean by that is the implied volatility going into earnings based upon the options market was a move of 10 percent. Yeah. Uh, is what Usually the, is for someone like them. Yeah. yeah. It was the implied val. So um, volatility. So it was interesting to kind of see it here. And I'll be curious if they faded at the open. We'll see. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Yep. Yeah, we'll see in 13 minutes here what happens. Um, and then last Friday, um, just after, or actually it was that morning of that I reported the podcast uh, last week, um, President Trump announced a phase one trade deal with China. Um, however, there has not been anything put on paper and signed just yet. So it's continuing to be just more talk than actual action at this point, I think. Yeah, Mark. I mean, I think it goes back to a couple of weeks ago when I speculated that if there was going to be any sort of a deal, it is going to be solidified at that APEC summit um, in Chile in the middle of November. That's the next uh, photo opportunity for President Xi and President Trump to be at the same place at the same time. And let's face it, if there's going to be a formal deal put in writing or the um, opportunity for a deal, a short-term deal to be struck, between now and the end of the year, in my opinion, that's when it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, but still nothing signed in ink yet. Uh, so more of the same uh, from what we've seen the past couple of years. Yep. Um, moving on to articles, tweets, and research from the week that we found interesting. You want to kick that off, Matt? Yeah, Mark. I got a couple this week. So first I want to dig into is um, consumer uh, retail sales for September. And this data is from Bespoke Investment Group, and it was from the 16th of October. So the headline number that some might have seen in the news was a drop of 30 basis points, or 0.3% in September. Now, that's the worst headline figure mark since February. Now, if you take out automobile sales and gasoline, the numbers were a lot better but we got to realize that sales have been on the move higher six straight months, okay, in a row. So it's still not a sign of worry uh, on, on my side of the coin when you kind of dig a little deeper. Uh, yeah. Any comments? Yeah, from that's what I wanted to comment on was that, you know, I also saw it was the first drop in like six months or something. So, and we know that these things can't always be rising. So there's going to be a month or two months where it's falling, but that's not necessarily... I don't think it's, you know, a strong enough indicator that, you know, we're we're headed for a recession or headed for a 10% drop in the markets. Yeah, and for the listeners, that's why we pay attention to this, yeah. right? Yeah. You, know, you and I are trying to pick up the tea leaves and say, is this data mounting up to a point where we need to be concerned about a recession? Mm -hmm. And I think you and I will both agree we're not seeing it yet from the consumer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, second thing, Mark, I want to highlight is um, corporate bond issuance in the month of September, okay? So with rates coming down so much over the past 12, 18 months, in September was the biggest month of corporate bond issuance in history. 
So the amount of debt that was issued in new bonds in September by corporations was $434 billion. I'll say it again. $434 billion in a single month. All right? Now, um, that's good for corporations. Why? Because their cost of borrowing goes down. They are locking in these low rates, and that's good for their profitability. Who's it bad for? It's bad yeah. for savers. Yeah. Because... When investors are going out there in the marketplace, and whether they're buying, say, a bond mutual fund or they're buying individual bonds, which is what we do in our practice, it's harder to find those diamonds in the rough. Yeah. Because with these rates coming down, you know, it was easier a couple of years ago to find, in our personal opinion, individual corporate bond paper that was yielding 5-6%. Yeah, and um, our job behind the scenes for clients is becoming more challenging in that environment, but that's why they pay us. Yeah, but for uh, savers, this is a negative, and um, with rates coming down, I think that the return that they're going to get on conservative or bond-oriented investments, those yields have come down. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a good thing for corporations because you know. They're uh, they're not going to be paying as much in interest to people, but um, you know, for the average saver and investor, it's just hard to find yield right now. It is, and then just um, for the listeners, that uh, source of that data was DealLogic on October fourteenth, Mark. Yeah, just so and I, I cited. Yeah, and I was talking with other people in the industry too, and um, you know, a, a big part of people who have others manage their money, they like um, muni bonds for the tax-free sure. uh, interest payments, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. But you know, munis are yielding like one to one point three percent right now, and you know that's barely keeping up with inflation. Oh my gosh! Um, I mean, so it's a real a real return of almost zero for for muni bonds right now, and it's just hard to communicate that to clients sometimes. But it's just like I can't justify mm-hmm. putting your money in that right now. And see volatility. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. might as well just keep it in cash. Yeah. You know, what's the use of putting it there, getting the same return as a money market, but then you got to deal with the volatility aspect right. of it. Right. Right. Yeah. So I just don't think that's a viable thing right now. Yeah. Because listeners have to understand that just because you have money um, in bonds doesn't mean it's going to go up every single month. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I got uh, one more mark I'd like to throw your way. Okay. Um, This is a money supply uh, report from Zero Hedge. Okay. And so a money supply um, overall in the U.S. economy hit a 12 month low this past August. In September, the Fed, I'm sorry, began printing money again, and it's putting it into the financial system. Now, they've done it to the tune in one month of $200 billion, okay? So they went from returning printed money to the U.S. Treasury for, what, over a year, Mm -hmm. and they realized that they took it a little too far. And boy, did they inject liquidity into the system in September. Yeah. Any comments you want to throw out there? No. Um, can you just uh, explain what the money supply is and you know how you look at it for people that really aren't familiar with that metric? Okay. So what we do is we look at metrics uh, by the Federal Reserve. Okay. And for many, many years, uh, to be very specific, since the great financial crisis, in order to inject liquidity into the system, the Treasury has printed money, given it to the Fed, and the Fed has gone out there and bought their own bonds mm-hmm. in order to push interest rates down. What they want to do, Mark, is they want to create an environment 
where the returns on bonds are low, forcing investors to do something else with the money, right? Buy stocks, buy real estate, invest in your business, yep. so on and so forth. Yep. Now, they've printed so much money, okay, over $4 trillion, they're trying to figure out how do they unwind that, mm -hmm. right? So what they've been doing is these bonds that they've been purchasing, as they've been coming due every month, which is around $40 billion or so per month, instead of taking that $40 billion and buying more bonds, i.e. rolling it, mm -hmm. they've been taking the money, the printed money, and returning Turning it to, to the, the treasury. treasury. And essentially burning. Exactly. And you're taking liquidity out of the system. Mm -hmm. So, in essence, if they've been doing that at a $40 billion rate per month, and then they reverse in September and inject $200 billion in a single month, what's that tell you? They went yeah. too far. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And the system is just not ready for, for this. Yeah. You know, think of a patient that's on medication, right? Whether you're at the hospital or at home. And if you try to wean yourself off that medication, they maybe have done it a little too quick. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. Be best analogy. Yeah. No. Now, the other point I want to make is this. Any time in the past that the Fed has injected uh, a massive amount of liquidity in a short period of time, that tends to be a positive for risk assets. I just want to throw that out there. That doesn't mean it's going to work that way in the future. Yeah. But historically, every time that they've injected money, printed money, into the financial system, it tends to be a good thing for risk assets. Yeah. Just throwing yeah. it out there. Yeah. Any I other comments agree. you want to make? No. Nope, not on that. Now, those are the three that I wanted to cover, Mark. I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, so I just had one uh, this week, and it was a tweet by um, Morgan Housel on Tuesday, who we've uh, mentioned on the podcast before. And um, it was a very simple tweet, but I just kind of liked you know, how it sounded to me. So all he tweeted was, high-value financial advice. One, spend less. Two, save more. Three, wait longer, and four, lower your expectations. Yeah, Slow I just thought, uh, yeah, that's Love just, it. that's the essence of, you know, of how to build wealth, I think, Matt, is that, you know, you can honestly boil it down to those four things and start there if you're a newbie and I think be very successful. Yeah, I think, um, in my opinion, we are in an instant gratification uh, environment. Right yes. Now. And especially the younger generations want that gratification so much quicker than older generations that people aren't willing to wait 15, 20, 30 years to see their portfolio or their wealth growth over time. They want it overnight. Yeah. I don't disagree with this. I think it's great. So just remember my two senses, you got to realize the compounding effect of wealth, its consistency and time in the market um, just what I want to add to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, definitely a really good tweet by Morgan. So, um, I'm sure we'll have more of his stuff on the podcast here in the near future. Um, so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, um, there is an article out there from the website Think Advisor, um, and this was published back on August 21st of this year by Jeff Berman titled Advisor's Advice top 11 retirement planning questions that client ask, clients ask. Um, so Think Advisor, this website went out and asked a, a bunch of advisors what the number one question they got from clients regarding retirement planning. 
and there turned out to be 11 common questions and I thought it would be fun to kind of just go through each question and give our take on these. So um, a lot of these you'll listen and hear that, you know, a lot of them are the same question just asked in a different way. way. So, um, you know, we'll read through them and we'll just kind of give our commentary on them. Um, So I'll start by asking the question and Matt, go ahead and give your two cents on it and then we'll kind of just go through all 11. So the first one, obviously, it's not going to be a shocker to people, is do I have enough to retire? My response, first question is, tell me about your lifestyle right now. How much money do you spend? What do you want to do in retirement? Mm -hmm. Right? We sit down with people, not an exaggeration. They're like, if I get 1500 bucks a month, two grand a month, I'm set. Yeah. And there's other people, I want 10 grand a month. That's right. And, you know, unless I intimately know you ahead of time, it's going to be difficult for me to disseminate that unless you explain that to me. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's the yep. first thing that comes to my mind. Yep. Right. And then we go down the rabbit hole from there. Absolutely. All right. Okay. So rapid fire. Number two, how much can we spend in retirement? Goes back to how much you saved, mm-hmm. right? So when someone says, hey, this is the um, you know pot of money that I have, how much money can I uh, take in retirement and not run out? Right. So then that goes to, let me see your financial situation. What have you saved up to this point? And when are you going to start uh, taking money from it? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Am I going to run out of money and die? So uh, what I'll say there is it all depends upon the withdrawal rate, right? So in our practice, we have a maximum uh, 5% withdrawal rule. Mm -hmm. So what that means for listeners is whatever you have on uh, deposit with us, we feel comfortable with the client taking up to 5% a year in the form of income. And if you go above that figure, it drastically increases the chances that you might run out of money uh, before you pass. Yeah, exactly. And it's sticking to that 5% because if you have a couple of years where you're taking like 10 or 15%, then that's going to throw things out of whack. Especially early on. Yeah. Right. With yeah. the compounding effect. And then I, and I, and it's funny you said that. I appreciate that because I talked about that a little bit on the podcast when you were out last week. There you go. The 5% rule. Great minds think alike, my yeah, friend. That's right. <laughs> um, okay. I'm getting near retirement. What do we have to address in our portfolio? So I, what that says to me is let's look at your risk level, right? Because you can either be too conservative or too aggressive. So in both are risks. Most people think it's I'm too aggressive and that's the risk. Mm-hmm. Where on the flip side, if you're way too conservative, there's no way you're going to be able to achieve a 5% withdrawal rate with zero stock exposure. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Uh, how I approach that question immediately is let's see what your level of risk is. Because that translates, in in my view, to a probable rate of return. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, will I have enough money to maintain my lifestyle in retirement? I think that, that was covers, already addressed yep. and went back Just to that. Just ask differently. Okay. Yeah. Um, how much do I need to save for retirement? All right. This is a good one. So this goes back to question one. What's mm-hmm. your lifestyle going to be? What's going to be your spending? And we have to frame it in today's dollars, right? So if I'm sitting in front of a 40-year-old and they're going to retire at 60 we have to ask that person to envision as if they were 60 today what their monthly lifestyle would be living expenses and then we plan for inflation because five thousand dollars a month today when they retire is going to be closer to 10 yeah right so we backdoor what the inflation is and then we can tell them well you're currently saving x per month you're either a on track or you're not and there's two levers you can pull when you're going to retire, how much you're saving. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Yeah. And um, the thing I was going to say about that, I 
had it and lost it, and I'm trying to think of it right now. <laughs> it'll, it'll come back. It'll come back. Yeah, it'll come back. Fire yeah. the next one on. Yeah. Um, so am I on track? And again, I think that goes back to uh, you know the questions that we are. Yeah. Where's your current before. financial state when you want to retire? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, this is what I was going to say about how much do I need to save for retirement? That saving for retirement when you're saving into a traditional regular 401k or a traditional IRA, you're not even helping. You're not only helping yourself for the future, but you're also reducing your taxable income for that year. Good point. Um, you know, so it's kind of like a double a double bonus that you know you're going to save for your retirement down the road for what you're going to want to do, but at the same time you're you're saving yourself on taxable income now for Ac- for this year. Excellent point. Um, so number eight, what age can I retire? And I think that you know goes back to what your lifestyle is, what you're going to be spending, exactly. and I reverse to how much they save. Yep. The only thing I'll add there is people need to be aware of medical costs because you're not eligible for Medicare until you're age 65. Great point. Um, so unless you um, work for the government or work for a union or a company that has a special um, medical program that you could stay on until you're 65, you're going to be able to gap you know, if you, you know, retire at 62, can you gap three years before you're eligible for Medicare? Now, I'm going to stereotype today. This is a very big stereotype. But uh, for someone who's 60, that is buying their own health insurance, right? And it's more of what I would call a catastrophic policy. It's going to run you seven, 800 bucks a month yeah, on average. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when that person reaches 65, which would make them eligible for Medicare, the feedback that we receive from clients is their total cost out the door with um, Medicare Part A, B, and any sort of supplemental be somewhere around three, 350 bucks a month total. So for listeners, as of today, <laughs> that's the data that I could throw out there. Yeah. Okay. And people just need to be prepared for that. Yep. If uh, they retire before 65. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. What else can I do to make sure I have enough to retire? So I think this goes uh, to the realm of what their withdrawal rate or how much income that they need, mm-hmm. right? Because um, that falls in line, when can I retire, right? Yeah. So that goes back to one of the previous questions. In yeah. yeah, and I think a good, a good way to explain that too is you know the tweet that I mentioned by Morgan Housel. What else can I do to make sure I have enough to retire? Spend less, save more, wait longer, and lower your expectations. Love it. Perfect. Um, number 10, when can I retire? We already kind of answered that. that. Just asked then, differently. Yeah. Then 11, am I at risk at outliving my money? And that goes back to, to withdrawal the withdrawal rate. rate. Yeah. Yep. You got to be just be that's careful a, with that. That's a great article, Mark. Good job. Yeah. So I just thought it'd be quick to do, it'd be fun to do a quick fire on, on those 11 questions. And again, a lot of them were asked just differently, but those were the top questions from advisors um that they got from clients about uh retirement planning good so moving on to questions submitted from listeners so we have a few questions from amy that we did not get to two weeks ago and that i wanted to wait um to have matt on before we moved on to these um so i'm just gonna read these directly from amy's email so amy says you mentioned recently that the government makes you take out money out of your retirement fund, either through age or that one poor lady that was poorly advised after five years when her relative died. And Amy was referring to um, a couple podcasts ago, we talked about how the transfer of wealth did Mm -hmm. not go as it should, and it caused a lot of problems. Um, If we don't need that money, where can we put it? Another retirement fund, a savings account, or just in the stock market? 
All right, so I'll tackle this one. So, um, Amy, the way it works is if you have money in a pre-tax uh, retirement account, such as a traditional IRA, a 401k, a 403b, when you reach the age of 70 and a half, whether you want to or not, the government's going to force you to take a minimum required withdrawal every year going forward. Because they want their tax revenue on some of that. You got it. And so the rough calculation I'll give you on the podcast today, it's roughly about 3.5% of your prior year-end account value at age 70 and a half. Now, what we do with our clients that aren't going to spend it is uh, we will ask them, do you want us to withhold Fed and state tax? Um, and then either way, we take it out of that account, Amy, and then we put it into an after-tax brokerage account and keep the money invested. Yeah. So we meet the government requirement of the minimum withdrawal. We can prepay tax if you want or not. And then we move the money to an after-tax brokerage, keep the money invested. Yeah. No, I think that's great. The one thing I'll throw out there uh, real quick is the older you get, Amy, that required minimum withdrawal percentage will go up because it's a IRS-supplied mortality table. So just throwing that out there. It's not always going to be 3.5%. 3.5%, yeah. Okay. Um, the second question we had from Amy was, how does the firm decide what to invest in and what to sell? I've been seeing a lot of paperwork for some trades and such. What do you look at to decide on a stock um, should be bought or sold? And how often is this done? So my initial gut is that's the secret sauce, right? Yeah. You know, um, you know, this is the secret recipe that um, I think gives us an advantage um, mm-hmm. over competition. So um, what I am kind of willing to throw out there for listeners in general is this. When we are making a uh, purchase decision, we are not looking out one week. We're not looking out one month. We are looking 12 to 18 months out at where security is going to be. We are cognizant of the political environment, the tax environment that we're in. We're cognizant of um, what is in vogue. We like to um, discriminate against, say, disruptors within certain markets, as an example. Um, So we are agnostic, Amy, on size of company, whether it's a large size, medium size, small size. We're agnostic on whether it's growth or value. And we brought that topic up a couple podcasts ago, the difference between those. So we are forward-looking. We like to make sure account is properly diversified. We're not going to have everyone in 100% tech, as mm-hmm. an example. Uh, anything you want to add, Mark? Yeah, I think um, you know to just kind of wrap that up in a bow is that we have you know our own set of metrics and um, of things that we look at. But you know at the end of the day, we you know we're trying to outperform the market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we want things that are over the long term going to outperform the S&P 500. So there's different things that we look at over different time periods um, to make those decisions about buying or selling something. Um, but you know, and we're cognizant of downside risk control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. So um, uh, that's a good question, though. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, number three was when I was looking at what to invest in my 401k held by another company, how does the average person know whether they want a large cap growth, small caps, etc.? You did hit slightly on the value stocks a few episodes ago, but can you expand on that? I'll start, Mark, and then you can add anything you, you wish. Mm-hmm. So my initial gut, Amy, on this question is this. If you're a listener and um, you don't want to put in, say, the time or effort to research all the investment options that are supplied by your company, I would encourage you to utilize what I would call one of the lifestyle funds. 
which they're either based upon this fund is aggressive, moderate aggressive, moderate, and so forth, or they have a target date, which is uh, 2030. And that year is closest to when you're 65. Yeah, so arbitrarily based on your age, you know, when you start the 401k, they'll pick the 2050 fund if you're supposed to be 65 in 2050. That's right. They, it gets more and more conservative, conservative as the you closer get, you get to that year. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time you get to that year, it has about 20% stock exposure is a rough rule of thumb that I would utilize. Mm-hmm. So if you had the 2025 fund, what's going to happen is it's going to get less and less stock exposure until it's down to only 20% stock exposure in that fund by the time 2025 comes along. Yeah. Okay. So um, to recap, Amy, before I answer the rest of the question, if uh, someone is unwilling or doesn't want to do the homework on all the investment options, pick one of those cookie cutter target date funds and they'll do it for you. Now, if you are willing to put in the homework um, and pick the individual funds, that's something you can do. Otherwise, I'd hire a professional such as us that can go through the funds. I could literally do it um, in say five or ten minutes. We we know these funds very well. Yeah. And um, you know, just as you know, you sit down with your doctor and they could diagnose and, and prescribe. You know, it's taken us years uh, to to learn this knowledge yeah. and experience that we're able to do it in, in a very quick fashion. Yep. Anything else, Mark? You want to add? No. No. That was good. Um, the last one from Amy. Um, says, I am interested when you are stating what the Fed rate change and the stock changes may be. Um, can you state on what mortgage ranges are and refi rates are when these changes are made? Houses are big purchases and might help to save some money for retirement if we know what the rates are. So my initial gut reaction on this, Amy, is as the Fed lowers interest rates, you're not going to see a direct 100% correlation to mortgage rates coming down. So when the Fed meets in a couple of weeks, let's just speculate for a second that if they do lower by one-fourth of 1%, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, 15 or 30-year mortgage rates are also going to come down exactly by one-fourth of 1%. Uh, banks are um, slow to lower and quick to raise. And um, I will say that um, just in general, it's not a direct correlation. Anything else you want to add, Mark? Yeah, and some of this stuff, you know, is kind of baked into the mortgage rates, I think, already. So I think that there's already probably been an adjustment for, say, another rate decrease this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if the Fed comes out and says, hey, we're cutting rates by another uh, 0.25%, you know, that might have already been baked into the mortgage rates currently. They're so you anticipating. Might, yeah, you might not see Investors mortgage are. rates like right after the, that day move down. Now, I want to answer the second part of your question, which is, and I quote Amy, might help to save money for retirement. So this only works if someone's willing to downsize or move to a different area of the country where real estate is cheaper. So if I have a client that has a uh, primary residence that has a market value of 300000 and they have it paid off when they retire, you know, you're, that's not really going to help you pay your living expenses. But if you were to downsize to say to a home that's 100000 and you take the difference, Amy, of two hundred grand, and you invest that, well, you're going to be able to take withdrawals off of that and increase your... Uh, your lifestyle, your living expenses. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in a different part of the country, you know, if if you live on uh, either of the east or west coast and you come to Ohio, 
you're gonna get bigger bang for your buck for the same size of house. And if you're disciplined to take that difference and invest it, yes, that's gonna help you save some money for retirement. But if you're not gonna downsize and you have all this equity in the house, there's no way to tap into that. Yeah. I just wanna throw that out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was interesting. We were out in California a couple months ago and we were talking to people about um, you know, square footage of house and, you know, how much it costs in San Francisco and how much it costs in Ohio and the costs were just drastically different. Drastically. <laughs> yeah, Mark and I were out in uh, in wine country in the middle of July. It was quite interesting just what talking the, with people about what the it costs for some soil out there. Yeah, I know. It's pretty crazy. So um but yeah, so thank you for the questions, Amy. Um, that was great. So keep them coming, everybody, um, because again, we want to make this podcast about you and you know help everyone understand things that they they don't currently. So um, keep the questions coming. Um, so just one last note before we sign off here: we are working on getting a tab on the website um, to post articles and podcast notes for each episode, so that listeners can follow along and read these articles um, you know after they listen to the podcast or read them along with when we're talking about them um, so we're working on that and that should be coming in the near future hopefully so um, with that being said anything else that you wanted to mention Matt before we wrap up no I know near the end of next week uh, you and I are gonna be uh, traveling uh, we have a, uh, yeah, a trip right. to uh, yeah. New York coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, before that, have to make a brief visit in uh, Texas to see a client. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you're going to be heading the day before as well to uh, Pennsylvania before you and I meet together in New York. So it might not be exactly Thursday morning next week, but you and I will work out the logistics. Yeah, we will. We're going to so, do it. Yeah, we'll bring it to you someday next week. Yes, we will. All right. So... Thanks, everybody, for listening to the 17th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.